Welcome to the Growth Equation Podcast. We're your hosts, Brad Stahlberg and Steve Magnus. Brad, my man, what's going on today? It is a great day here in Asheville. We've got peak spring weather, 65 sunny, dogs are in the backyard, escaping the fence, running around, causing all kinds of trouble. We've got them riled up. I just had lunch and now I am here to record with you. So I'm doing, uh, I'm doing well. How are you, Steve? You know, it's not 65 and sunny, maybe like 95 and sunny, but we're doing great here. Run is done. The dog has gone wild and run himself into exhaustion and we're, we're good to go. So everything's good. That's, that's how we like to hear it. It's not every week that everything's good. It's rarely every week. So listeners, we hope that everything is good for you too. If everything is good, and you're feeling great, you might want to consider supporting us on Patreon. Uh, for longtime listeners, you'll know that we are 100% independent and member supported. This allows us to have podcasts where we don't have sponsor reads and advertisements, uh, not because we've got anything against sponsor reads or advertisements, but just because so many of the brands that tend to sponsor podcasts like ours uh, they aren't necessarily based on the evidence, and, and some of them may fly in the face of the kinds of things that we we teach towards. So we've done this podcast independently. The best way to support it is through Patreon, www.patreon.com backslash The Growth Equation. In exchange for as little as $5 a month, you get access to all kinds of neat, exclusive stuff. These include signed copies of our latest book. They include a monthly mastermind group. They include a quarterly deep dive mastermind group. They include a live Zoom book club where we feature authors of best-selling books in all kinds of genres. Uh, it's really a great, great, great bargain. So check it out, www.patreon.com backslash the growth equation. And with that, who do we have joining us today, Steve? We've got a very special guest for a very special topic. Oh, yes. We've got the man behind the scenes who keeps Brad and I in check and makes sure the growth equation doesn't go off the rails, Chris Douglas. Howdy. Thanks for having me. Nice to be uh, finally on the show instead of just listening to it. So Chris is the COO of the growth equation. He, as Steve said, keeps the ship sailing in the right direction. Uh, he has not had luck getting Steve to respond to his emails. So that validates me as well, because that makes two of us. Um, but we're not just here to rag on Steve. We are here to do an AMA. We solicited questions a couple episodes back. We got some really good ones in. Steve and I have just glanced at them. And then shot him over to Chris to do what he does best, which is organize them, make sense of them. And um, we're going to turn the mic over to Chris, who will MC the conversation. Uh, for those that submitted questions, thank you very much. Uh, we got a bunch of really good ones. If you don't hear your exact question, our guess is that you'll hear something thematically similar. Uh, where there was overlap, we did our best to condense so that we could... Uh, we could get through this in 30 to 45 minutes uh, instead of two days. So 
with no further ado, Chris, welcome to the show. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks again for having me. Um, we should just dive right in, eh? Let's do it. Let's, let's do it. All right. So the first question, and this will go to you, Steve, first, and then Brad. Um, you guys mention your dogs quite often on the show. Tell us more. That's uh, that's all I got on this one. All right. Yes. A dog question. As I say that, my dog, Willie, just perked up. So we like to talk about our dogs. Brad has a German Shepherd. I have some sort of mix, which includes a German Shepherd. Um, but our, our dogs kind of ground us, I, I would say. You know, Willie is a mutt who my wife found in a tire on a run. And although he was living in a tire, somehow he was completely potty trained. And he's a very smart dog, but he also is very kind of wild and rambunctious and nefarious. It's like having a two-year-old constantly around for life. So Willie is known for trying to get in the garbage or trash or into anything whenever we leave. He does not get into anything or cause trouble when we are here. But as soon as we leave the door, he likes to get back at us for leaving him alone. Um, so he, he's a great dog. And, you know, we've mentioned on the on the on the podcast before, but I think it's worth saying that Willie naturally follows a 23 an hour, 23 and a half hour fast. He does not eat until about 10 o'clock at night, even if there is food out. The only exception is he eats uh you know, human food at any point in time, if he can get a hold of it. So that's just like all those other intermittent fasters, 23 and a half hour, half hour eating window with the exception of the cheese, potato chips, candy that they snack on. In between. <laughs> that's he does it, it right. You know? A hot take right there. He does it right. And he's got tons of testosterone. I've seen Willie mad. You don't want to be in his way. No, he <laughs> likes to, uh, he likes to run people over. So that is well. How about how about your dog Ananda, Brad? Well, what do you think of Ananda, Chris? Chris Chris recently got to meet Ananda when he came to the Stahlberg headquarters. Did yeah, he live up so, to the hype? Yeah. So I've uh, I've never had a pet because my mom was a neat freak, and I guess that carried on to me. So you know, pets just meant uh, things to clean. Um, so I feel like I always have a lot of love to give to animals that aren't mine because that's all I've ever known. And, uh, yeah, I got to meet Ananda, uh, Ananda, was it two weeks ago now, three weeks ago? Can't remember, but yeah, awesome. We went for a walk. It was actually kind of cool to go on sort of the walk that, um, the Brad that you do with, with him sort of on a, on the weekly, on the daily almost. So, so that was fun to kind of see where, where, where you kind of get your creative juices flowing and, uh, where you get yourself grounded again, um, in nature, but yeah, Ananda's awesome. Ananda's great. German shepherds are the best. Steve and I often talk about, um, we haven't told you this Chris yet, but I'm sure you could, you can make this work. If, if this podcast fails, uh, we're just going to start a German Shepherd podcast, like living that GSD life, German Shepherd dog. Uh, Ananda is the best dog ever, and he's 18 months and 94% predictable, but that 6% is just terrifying. So we're at a point where nine and a half out of 10 interactions with other dogs and other people go swimmingly well, 
but that that one out of 20 interactions that you just never know when he's going to smell something that he doesn't like. He, he keeps me on my toes. Um, but we love having him around. I We also have two cats and a child, and um, it is just, uh, it's a ruckus in here. But I think it's good because um, it, it has really helped me get beyond any notion of things needing to be a certain way to write or think or have like peace of mind um, because it's just always chaos. There's always a dog barking, a kid barking, a dog barking at a kid, a kid barking at a dog. You get the point. Um, but it's good. It, it's nice to have things outside of work to, to keep you uh, to keep you grounded, not to keep belaboring the, the word that we often use here. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Um, and dog training was really neat too, just how similar it is to human training. We did a, an article on that a long time ago, but um, we think that we're so different, but we're actually pretty alike. <laughs> I love it. Um, all right. So the next question is, what are some recent books that you've both have read? Let's start with Brad. Recent I guess books. Read, I guess read and liked. Yeah. Well, Robert Persig who authored Zen and the Art of Motorcycle and Maintenance, my all-time favorite book, and Lila, the sequel, which is probably my second favorite book. Uh, he passed away in, I want to say 2017, yeah, five years ago. And just recently, his wife and his editor, um, his editor published a post-humanist, hominous uh, collection of essays many of which were previously unpublished. Some were in draft form that later made it into those first two books. And I just loved it. Um, I thought that it was such a neat look into the rougher, unedited uh, workings of this intellectual giant's mind. So I loved the recent Persig book, I'm actually blanking on what it was called. The subtitle was An Inquiry on Excellence. Um, the title is, I'm pulling it up right now. We just on recommended quality. it in the newsletter, so I should know it. It is on quality. Yeah. And quality was Persig's big thing, right? Quality with a capital Q. It was how Persig talked about what we might call sustainable excellence or flow um, or even some would say love. So I loved On Quality. I thought that that was a great book. And then I recently finished Johan Hari's latest book, Stolen Focus. And um, that was a great book. He is more of a like a militant social science writer, I'd say. He writes with much more of an edge than Steve or I do. Um, so it can be a little bit jarring for me. Like I struggle to really love the writing style but um, then again, part of the reason he writes with that style is he genuinely believes that there's like a war on our focus and attention and we need to fight back. And I loved how he took that book and he went from all the more common conversation lines around uh, focus, productivity, joy, community and zoomed out and made an argument that I hadn't really considered much, which is basically like the biggest societal problems. So um, authoritarian leaders and dictators in places like Russia, uh, climate change, they solving these problems require tons of focused attention and collaboration amongst people in the attention economy just destroys our ability to pay attention and to collaborate with people. 
Um, so that was a really interesting argument that hit home for me. Uh, so I loved it. I, I couldn't recommend either of those books more highly. All right. Um, let's see. I'm enjoying or have enjoyed recently. Uh, there was a book called Work, A Deep History from the Stone Age to the Age of Robots by James Suzman, which is um, kind of one of those big topic books. It traces... It's a, Susman is an anthropologist, and it traces essentially our history of of work and some of the misconceptions we get wrong. And I think the most interesting part for me about it is we tend to think of like leisure as a modern thing, but in there, the author details how going back to hunter gatherers, they actually only spent like. I think it was something like 16 hours a week actually hunting or gathering. And then on top of that, maybe a f- another 15, 20 hours doing chores and other things. So they actually had a, a heck of a lot of, uh, of leisure and free time. And, you know, there's a lot in there on, on how kind of our relationship with work kind of determines what we value and our sense of status in society. And he kind of ties it to whether we're kind of in the capitalistic or egalitarian uh, approach. So it's really fascinating read if you like deep historical dives. And then also I just started uh, Dan Coyle has a new book out called the culture playbook, which is, Essentially, before this, his last book, Coyle's last book was great. It was The Culture Code, which is more of a traditional book. And this one is, I think, something like 50 or 60. I'll call them like one-liners on practices that Coyle had noticed other teams, organizations, etc. utilize to develop good culture. And I found it a really nice takeaway or practical book that... It gave me some ideas on, um, you know, different tactics and such. I'll try with teams and organizations to try and fix their culture. But I I love the fact that he, Coyle, centers around, like, the idea of culture is, like, developing through vulnerability, you know, psychological safety, authenticity, instead of, you know, and essentially the shared journey instead of kind of, you know, the top-down model of like, hey, we're going to put some core values on the wall and claim that it does something. So uh, how about, do you guys read anything for fun? <laughs> it's so hard. I mean, I'm assuming, I, I mean, I know these are fun, but it's great reads. You're expanding your mind and stuff, but uh, anything in there that's just fiction or, you know, biography of somebody? I can go first. I like reading fiction, but I read fiction in spurts. So I tend to take November and December as really light months from a um, like intellectual standpoint for our own work. So it's like my holiday gift to myself is I read a ton of fiction. And the most recent novel that I read was probably in December. Um, so it's been a minute, but um, Cloud Cuckoo Island by the dude that wrote all the light that we cannot see. I'm forgetting his name. Um, Cloud 
I'm doing another. Claude Cuckerland. Let's see. Uh, it's a famous author, Anthony Dewar. Great book. Phenomenal book. Gutting, like it's everything a big novel should be. Gutting, um, poignant, funny, made you feel all the feels, uh, so on and so forth. Listeners can't see, but we can see. Steve is is laughing or was laughing because um, Steve doesn't read fiction. That is true. <laughs> I don't. Um, I very rarely do, and the reason is partially because I am like the world's slowest reader ever. So if I'm going to devote myself to a book, I kind of want to get something out of it. What I do tend to do is either listen to audiobooks or podcasts that go deep on story or, you know, biography. For instance, there was, gosh, last week I, I listened to this great series called, um, it was a podcast series, The World's Greatest Con. And it was describing a actual like um, con that that the allies in World War II pulled off where they essentially, you know, dropped a body into the ocean that had some quote unquote secret information, you know, in their pocket and the body floated to the shore and and the Nazis, you know, found it and took the information all the way up to Hitler and um, defended the wrong place during World War II. So I love historical, you know, takes like that, but I'm more likely to listen to them instead of read them. Man, Chris asks you for a lighter, more fun read, and you talk about the Nazis in World War II, Steve. It it was a fun read. Listen, just, you know, <laughs> well, give you know, it a shot. It's funny when you mention something like, oh, it's the world's greatest con. I'm thinking of uh, modern day U.S. politics. But, um, you know, anyway, probably shouldn't go there. Uh, all right. Next question. Um, I know that you're both concerned with social media. Um, how do you manage your own use currently? I know this is something you brought up on podcast, but um, can you sort of rephrase your sort of current feelings on how you manage your use? Let's start with you, Steve. Sure. So I utilize it a little bit more than Brad, I think. <laughs> Brad says I'm injecting it into my veins. But here, here's what I do. Okay. <laughs> my primary social media use is Twitter. I schedule everything um, or practically everything. But I do try and engage with people on specific, like during specific time periods. So I'll block off time periods to engage with people and try and cultivate either productive engagement or like, you know, we'll call it online relationships that I can take offline to learn from. If I see someone who's like, oh, man, this person's really on it. Like, I want to get to know what they're doing, all that stuff. Twitter is a great place for making those connections, which often wouldn't happen uh, in the real world. So I try and be really intentional about it. Anything else, you know, Instagram, I handle my own in the growth EQ. But as you can see, if you follow us, it's, there's some great content on there, but it is very quickly put together. Um, same with Facebook. Don't post much except for sharing articles. And uh, that that's kind of my relationship with it. I have I have a love-hate relationship with it, but I try to always check in to make sure I'm using it, the social media, instead of it using me. That's good. I like that. How about you, Brad? Let's see. I, 
You know, you're catching me at an interesting time because much like Steve, I am not an all or nothing person here. I don't think social media is all good or all bad. And last week, Rich Roll released the podcast that I did with him, um, which is a long two and a half hour conversation about groundedness, about my experience with OCD, about athletic training. And we touched on so many neat and important things and, and in ways that I hadn't been given the the space by an interviewer to, to do before. And there was a pretty nice response in social media. So I spent a lot of time on Twitter communicating with people about it, uh, answering questions, sharing it, um, engaging in some follow-up dialogues. And that to me is like when Steve talks about social media as a tool, like that's the best of the tool, right? I'm reaching people that I couldn't have reached. I got easily 15 messages from people that either they themselves or uh, one of their younger children was going through symptoms that they just couldn't make sense of and medical professionals couldn't. And they're like, you're describing like exactly this. It's OCD. And as we talked about in the podcast, OCD is really misunderstood. So that stuff's great. Um, Outside of weeks when a podcast like that comes out, I don't spend nearly as much time on social media. I try to limit myself to no more than 25 minutes a day. What it generally looks like is 10 minutes in the morning um, when the the oil in my psychological pipes is kind of, uh, what's the word, like it's um, congealed. Uh, I'll log on to Twitter and I'll just start like reading things and seeing things and literally just waking up. Um, and then often at the end of the day, around like 5, 5.15, I'll, I'll just quickly check in, see if anybody commented on anything that I, I scheduled to share, so on and so forth. Um, yeah, that's where I'm at right now. When a book comes out, as any of our followers know, all bets are off. We spend a lot of time there because um, we both believe that you got to meet people where they are. And a lot of people spend a lot of time on social media. So we, we go there and we meet. We meet people there. Um, and it's tough, too, because I, 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 I say that with a little bit of a smirk, but I, I really try to be nonjudgmental because I've had periods of my life where I've spent a ton of time on social media. So I think it's just kind of a, where you're at, what's your relationship with it like? And I think there's no real wrong answer short of not being aware of like how you're using it and what that means for you. Uh, and right now, for me, the more time I spend on there, um, the less able I am to focus on, on other projects. And some people are able to spend time on social media and still maintain that focus. Some people work in seasons where they spend a lot of time on social, they're off, um, so on and so forth. So that's where I'm at. I'm not going to quit because Elon Musk bought Twitter. I actually think it's a good thing that Elon Musk bought Twitter. Wait, don't let's let's not get ahead of ourselves here because uh, that's that's a follow up question. But before we get to that, really? I think it's really it is. It definitely is. So good job. Oh, I didn't look at these. They sent them to Steve, and then Steve forwarded them to Chris. All right, I'll hit pause. Yeah, good job. Yeah, just pause a little about that. I think it's interesting. You know, one of the teachings from and this is this is this is not part of the AMA. This is a question for me. Is especially in the you know the passion paradox. One of the things that's mentioned a lot is sort of the relationship between harmonious and disharmonious passion. But I find that that's something that you can apply, maybe not on like, you know, passion for a career or something, but in your relationship with uh, social media or different things that you do, like, is your relationship harmonious or disharmonious? Is that something that you guys would co-sign on in, in terms of like, you want to try to keep it harmonious and healthy, not have it stray? For sure. I have a quick question for you. 
The 282 reviews of The Passion Paradox, are they all you? Did you just create 282 Amazon accounts to review no, that book? I, uh, no, but thanks for the idea. So I'm gonna, I'll try to add a bunch there. If no one's read The Passion Paradox, you definitely should. It's an amazing book that doesn't get enough credit. But uh, anyway, that's, that's, that's my plug for, for PP2. Um, next question is, <laughs> what do you think of Elon Musk buying Twitter? <laughs> So Brad, why don't, why don't you uh, you know get us back on that train of thought you were on? I'll be quick. Um, I think it's great. So I'm working on a story for the New York Times about this right now, and it's not going to sound like my answer here because the story is on a very particular angle, which is is the amount of time that we spend on social media holding back progress and solving big and important problems. And I think that it is, but. Here's the reason I think Elon Musk buying Twitter is great. I think that Twitter is currently kind of a cesspool. And I think that Elon Musk is either going to make it such a gross, disgusting cesspool that everybody wants to take a hot shower and get off, or he's going to make it better. But I don't think that it'll just be more of the same. So I think that it's either going to be really clear that Twitter sucks or he'll do things that make it better. That's my take. Steve's take is very different. Yeah, I, I don't think much will change. So I I think that I'm indifferent on Musk buying Twitter. I think it's like, you know, a rich, powerful guy who's whatever, like let his ego own something. It doesn't matter to me. But I don't think much will change. I think, you know, he'll go for the kind of quick hit, big changes that that look great but probably don't do a whole heck of a lot maybe um you know an edit button maybe verifying real people etc things like that and it might make a little bit of a difference but i think it's it's such a headache and part of human nature to be online that i'm not sure this is like an easy problem to fix and where I come at it is, if you look at the history of the internet, basically any single interactive space is kind of turns into a cesspool. You go back 20 years ago to like the beginning of message boards or comments after, after news articles were a big thing for a while, threads, all that stuff. And... Yeah, they were they had their positive spots and some were more positive than others, but many turned into a internet online cesspool and this was in the days before bots and all this stuff. And I think that's just kind of unfortunately, you know, public communication in a online world where we can't see each other or can't put a a, a name to a face or all those things. So, I don't think much will change. I think it'll be kind of what it is and you know as we just talked about some good some bad some trolls some evil but it's that's just living online i guess yeah no that's that's i think uh hopefully hopefully good but yeah i'm not really holding my hopes for for some sort of dramatic change i think for the reasons you said i think ever since there's been message boards and people have a chance to be anonymous you know, usually you get the worst out of people, not the best. All right, let's move on to something else. So the let next me defend my answer real quick, because I'm about okay, to butt in and be like, well, they're probably right. But the reason that I come back to 
he's either going to run it into the ground or not, is I think Elon Musk is the kind of person that isn't okay with just like incremental change. So I think that he wants to fail spectacular, spectacularly or succeed spectacularly. And whatever you think of the guy, and I'm on the record saying that I don't know Elon Musk. I've never met him in person. He seems like an enormous asshole that I wouldn't want to be friends with, but I'm very glad that he exists in the world. Um, given what he's done for climate in particular in, in aerospace technology, which is very much related to climate. Um, I think that he probably thinks that everyone told me that it was crazy to make an electric vehicle that's cost effective, that people are going to want to drive. And all these big institutions, a la automakers said, don't do that. And I said, F you. And I did it. Everyone told me I was even crazier to think that I could be better than NASA, and I did it. Everyone said I was nuts to try to build affordable batteries that can link to a solar system so that houses can be self-containing, and I did it. So Elon Musk, huge ego that comes from those victories, in this case is probably like everyone says it's impossible for social media to work. Well, that's what I've been told about everything I do. So that's my argument for... The argument against is that kind of success and the ego it breeds works great until it becomes the trap that gets in your way. And I think what you both are arguing is like, this is going to be the time it gets in his way. And that could happen. The other thing I'd, I'd add there is that everything you just outlined is an engineering problem. And I think he thinks this is an engineering problem, but it's a human psychology problem. And those sure. are all... Those are always much more difficult to fix. That's why I have much less faith. <laughs> For sure. And other like you're not the only super smart person I've heard say that. So like I, I think I think y'all are probably gonna be right, but I'm trying to maintain hope that I'll either come back and love social media or it will be so clear that it sucks that my twenty five minutes go to zero. Um, but maybe nothing will really change. Maybe we'll get an edit button and shit, what a tragedy that would be if instead of like cheaper solar panels and more electric vehicles and less carbon in the atmosphere. We got an edit button. <laughs> yeah. All right. So, so let's, uh, let, let's move on from that. That was a, that's a good place to pivot. Um, our next question is how, how do you manage to follow your teachings in an environment, physical, social, cultural that encourages in many cases, the complete opposite. I'm doing my best. This is the, the question. Um, practice your teachings and quite often feel like like I'm walking upstream. I think swimming upstream as well. Should one try to change his or her environment in order to be able to follow your teachings better? What do you guys think? Let's start with you, Steve. Yeah, so this is this is I'll give you two two parts here. I think for for one is a lot of our teachings feel like you're going upstream or swimming upstream because like modern society pushes us towards like cheap, easy, quick fix, you know, things that don't actually work. And I think the number, the first thing you have to have to kind of acknowledge is like, accept that that's going to be the case and accept that like your environment will probably pull against you even if you change it or try and optimize it or what have you that's just how how it is that doesn't mean give up i think that just frames it that it's always going to be a little bit difficult so to me it's how do i lower the bar on the decisions or the teachings or the practices that i want to do 
And how do I raise the bar, make it really difficult on the things that I don't want to do? So social media, since we just talked about this, is simple. Want to spend less time online? Make it more difficult. You know, take social media, Twitter, Facebook, all off your phone. Leave your phone in the the kitchen instead of your bedroom. Like all of those things to make it a little bit more difficult. On the flip side, maybe have a book next to your bed. Make it easier to read, etc. Just ship that. The other part, the second part of that question is, should one try to change his or her environment? I always like to say our environment invites action. So if your environment is constantly pushing you the other way, then sure, like shifting that environment a little bit is important. How much so, whether you need a radical change or not, it, it kind of just depends, you know, on whether your environment is like supportive or really freaking getting in the way. And, and that's kind of an individual decision. Um, but you know, the, the one other thing I'd say is you can't optimize for everything. So, you know, when I look at the environment I've created my space, if I look at my physical space, one of the thing that was important for my wife and I was be close to parks. So we were fortunate enough to like pick a place to live where we could go outside. Some people might not be able to do that or optimize around that. And that's just like you've got to figure out and choose what's important to you and what like fits in your your uh, your world. I agree. I don't have much to add. I think that if this person is asking from a workplace standpoint, so how do I do this in a job where I feel like all my colleagues are moving in the other direction? Um, the same thing applies uh, there it's just around, Hey, is this an organization that is like a 10 out of 10 current moving in the opposite direction? And if so, then maybe it's time to start looking for another job versus is this an organization that is a soft current in the other direction and it's worth trying to swim upstream and change things a bit and and craft one's own job and one's own circle of colleagues and, and working norms. Um, in in there again, like without knowing the the nuance, this is what what a year of coaching helps people figure out is like, hey, do I do I stay in this role? Do I try to transition out of this role? Um, I think if it's an extreme situation, you know, if you care deeply about public health and you work at a tobacco company, there's probably going to be too much dissonance. So, if you care deeply about autonomy and managing your your time and energy, and you work at a company with open calendars in eight hours of meetings a day and everything you try backfires, then it might, it, it's a good time to look for a, a new job, particularly if you're a knowledge worker. Um, cause it's a, it's a seller's market right now. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, I feel like if I can ask a follow up question to that, um, it, what it, it can be daunting when you look at something like practice of groundedness and you're trying to do them all right. And it could be like, it, it could definitely feel overwhelming to be like, well, I got to implement all these things and then try to be grounded while trying to achieve peak performance is what, what would you say would be like one or two of sort of the most important principles speaking of practice of groundedness where you'd be like, all right, well, these are probably the ones you want to have lined up. Is it developing community? Is it being present? Are there some that you think would, would 
be more important to try to make sure that you're aligning if you can't get them all because you feel like you're going upstream? I'd say start with whatever ones are the easiest. So get some small victories. And if you can't figure out what are the easiest, what are the ones that interest you most and that you're most curious about? Because they all interrelate and they all build on one another. Um, and, you know, for one person starting with community might make a lot of sense, whereas for another person starting with patience or presence might make a lot of sense. Um, so I, I often, it's a common question I get from readers and I often say, well, what, what chapter was most engaging to you or which of these do you think will make the biggest impact in your life or which of these do you think you could start doing with the least friction? And, um, I think getting some, some little victories is more important than any particular principle again, because they all feed into each other. So once you get that inertia rolling, it, it gets easier as you go. I love it. Um, Moving on to the next question. Sleep is something that you say is paramount. How do I balance this with being a new parent? <laughs> yeah, good luck with that. It's It seems impossible to get any sleep. Help. And I think this would apply if you're like a, you know, if you have a new puppy or something. So, I, you know, I think there's <laughs> there's some analogies there between babies and and, uh, and animals. So, uh, Steve, why don't, you, why don't you kick us off with that one? <laughs> You know, this will be simple for me. I don't have any kids, so I have no idea. I sleep great. <laughs> put, the dog, put the dog in the den and shut the door and lock it and let it cry yeah. it out. Don't yeah. do that with your kid. Yeah, that's that. Until that's they're three kinda, months. That's kind of it. No, you know, the only thing I'd say is be kind to yourself. You know, lower the bar a little bit and realize that there's seasonality towards this. You know, you're going to have phases where you're not going to optimize everything and you need to figure out, you know, this is a reality. You're going to try and get the best sleep you can, but like, what can you function or how can you function off of, uh, what are, whatever sleep you're, you're allowed to and allowed to get and, and, um, what other aids might be able to help get you through the day, whether that's coffee or short naps or, you know, going outside and feeling refreshed, whatever it is. Yeah, yep. how about you, uh, Brad? I agree with everything Steve says, even though he doesn't have a kid. It's great advice. Um, don't freak out if you don't sleep. Don't expect to sleep. Throw out your whoop when you have an infant. Don't wear your whoop or your Fitbit or your aura ring because it's just going to tell you that you're not getting sleep. No shit, you have an infant. Um, humans can survive without sleep. It's not ideal. You don't feel as good, but no one dies I don't think it lowered, like there's no studies that show that if you have kids, you live uh, less of a lifespan than if you don't have kids. So people are resilient. People bounce back. I think the number one problem that happens is that people freak out about not getting sleep instead of just being like, I might not get sleep. I'm going to do everything I can, but um, my kid's up, my kid's up. Uh, and to Steve's point about seasonality, to the extent that you can try to set a lower expectation with yourself for other areas of your life. So if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably very excellence driven. It's okay to have a one year period where you're just good enough across the board in life at work, as a partner, as a friend. Um, and that's okay. I think that so much of the problem comes with too high expectations for sleep and performance in all areas of life at the same time you have an infant. And then you just feel like you're sucking at everything instead of lowering the bar and, um, and getting through. 
you know, and then, and then lean into community. One, one thing I disagree on is a lot of people talk about like baby Island. People have a baby and they disappear. And, um, I don't necessarily, I, I, that hasn't been our experience. And I think that, um, it's, it's helpful to ask for help and it's a good opportunity to be vulnerable and ask for help is when you have a a little kid, whether it's from neighbors or friends or, or what have you. Um, so that's it. So I have a, it's, I mean, this question is really interesting because I have a couple of my friends. So this year seems like all of my friends are having kids as two of them are having twins. Another one's having a, a boy and as sort of like the old man with children, not that I feel that old, I got a six year old and a three year old, um, you know, they've been asking me for advice. So I actually came up with a, with a list of, of basically parenting advice. A lot of it comes from, from, from the reading. Do you guys want to hear it? It's super short. Uh, the first one is uh, be present. Every moment isn't magic, but hey, parenting isn't all sun, moon, and rainbows. The second one is volunteer to change all the diapers. Like if someone asks you how many diapers you've changed so far, your brain would shut down from trying to figure out that calculation. Um, and then 2A for that one is change even more diapers. You should be a stone cold 36 chambers of Shaolin diaper ninja and or a third generation shit farmer in terms of like you should just change all the diapers take turns night feeding. So be involved. Again, this kind of goes against the sleep thing. But the thing about that is like, you know, it's going to change over time, right? Every every stage is going to be different than the one before. Communicate, being as open as possible with your partner. That helps. If you're struggling with sleep, you have to communicate that. Uh, five, don't bicker and give foot rubs like your life depends on it. <laughs> Whenever asked, just give a foot rub. Um, talk to your kids constantly from day one preferably in a foreign language. That's worked wonders for us. Access your network. You're not the first person going through anything. So use your network. Ask people. No one says that parenting, like you said, like parent island, there's no rule that says you have to figure this all by yourself. More likely than not, someone's gone through it and has like a crazy tip that's going to save you. Um, Throw money at the problem if you actually think it's going to solve that problem. So there's all like the thousand dollar cribs that shake the baby all weird and help him put him to sleep. Like that stuff is great, but maybe it doesn't work. Like who knows, right? Um, and then finally, have fun with it. Like kids are tough. Once your little engines get going, it will never stop. Plus, you kind of get to relive your childhood, which at least for me has been instrumental in just seeing the world from a new perspective. And sleep, your relationship with sleep, in my opinion, as someone who doesn't sleep a lot at baseline, like. I never feel like I'm losing sleep when I'm taking care of my kids. It's just like, oh, my kids need to be taken care of. So I do it right. So sort of your relationship with these things that you're missing, in my experience, um, has like a different patina on it because you're doing it for the things that you've, you know, ostensibly love more than anything that you've ever had in your life. Right. So so. I mean, I just throw that out there because I think in terms of lists, but I'm curious um, if you guys would co-sign on some of these points or anything you'd want to add to that. I think it's great. You have like eight self-help parenting book titles in there. <laughs> yeah, too bad I have no authority, but that's okay. Become a sh- become a shit farmer. That would be a great <laughs> parenting. Third book. generation shit farmer. Third generation um, shit farmer. Very Excuse comfortable me. with shit. Um, all right. So next question, which which Brad, once again, you're sort of like the AMA whisperer here. Um, is there any role for tools like Whoop or Fitbits? I know we've uh, we've had podcasts about this, but people are asking, is there any role for them at all? So, Brad, why don't you kick us off since uh, you teed it up before? 
It depends. So the short answer is yes. The second answer is what are you trying to do? So if you're trying to start and stick to a behavior and having measurement and accountability will help you, then the tool is great until it gets in the way. So really um, concrete example is I wasn't sure how many steps I was getting. And I just assumed that I was pretty active because I go to the gym and stuff, blah, blah, blah. And, and the strength coach that I work with is like, let's just get a baseline. And I was getting less steps than I thought. So I used um, the, the iPhone pedometer for two weeks. And then very quickly, I kind of understood, like, here's what 6,000 steps feels like. Here's what 8,000 feels like. Here's what 10,000 feels like. Here's what 12,000 feels like. And after two weeks, I stopped using the pedometer. Now, I knew to stop because on day 13... I was like purposefully putting on shorts right when I got out of bed so I could put the phone in my pocket so I could count the steps going down to make coffee and coming back up. And that's when I knew like this is now just getting in my way because that's not the point. Whether or not I take those 18 steps isn't going to make or break my health or anything. But until then, it was super valuable because it, it helped me see something that I, I hadn't seen before and it made it more concrete. Uh so I think that that's true with with a lot of these devices, so long as the device is accurate. So that would be my short answer. Yeah, the the only thing I'd add there is, and I agree with everything Brad said, is that sometimes devices like this can be helpful to hold people back um, who are constant like pushers, etc. Even even if you know the accuracy isn't the best. <laughs> on some of these devices sometimes it's great because it will teach people to kind of like you know take a step back so i've used that with not these exact devices but similar things with um with some runners before using hrv etc to try and get them to understand that you need rest and recovery but most of the time we try to work towards independence instead of dependence so the tool might help start that conversation and that awareness and like that awareness of reading your body. But the goal is always to move towards, you know, independence where you can read your body without like the score or whatever telling you that you need to. I love it. I love it. All right. Last question. I can't believe we're already at the end here, but um, looking forward, what projects are you guys working on? either together or separately or, or whatever. So let's start with you, Steve. Good question. So I am not working on anything crazy because I have a big event coming up, which we haven't talked about yet. So I'll just leave it at that. Although people can Google and figure it out, but I'm in like prep mode. I'm just going nuts on, on getting ready for this thing uh, to keep some sanity I always am in the kind of research and dabbling. So I'm researching and dabbling on like maybe what the next big project will be after this. I have a couple really, I think, good ideas. But what that means is I'm exploring those and kind of wrapping my head around them uh, before I kind of dive deep in and, um, you know, figure out what it is. Well, before before we go to you, Brad, um I'm not going to let you off the hook that easy. Can you can you share kind of like what what, what does that process look? What does the dabbling process look like? Do you set time sure. aside? Like, I'm sure people yeah. want to know, want to peek under the hood there a little bit. 
Yeah, sure. That's a good question. I'm fine talking about that. So my dabble process is pretty simple. Is um, I set aside time where I go deep. And what I mean by that is I generally start with research. But if I, I have a, a topic that's interesting, then I just start on Google Scholar and go through and look at research articles around that so I know what what like the science says um and i'll just kind of give myself you know several days to go deep on a subject or a topic so uh let me think of an example i mean it it, this isn't what i was looking at but i'll give you this like if i wanted to know about performance anxiety like i'd start with that and then i'd read a research article and then i would just go through all of the citations that i found interesting and then branch off to that and then do the same thing over and over and over again until I am so deep down the rabbit hole that I don't know what's going on. And that's my 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 like cue to step back and zoom out. And then in addition to that, because my bent is science, then I start looking at stories or understanding outside of the science world of people who have, let's say, performance anxiety around. Looking at different performers, how they've handled it, how they've navigated it and looking for like stories in that genre so that I can have like both ends of the spectrum, the deep science, the practical experience. And then that really gives me an idea of what we know um, from both ends and whether it's something that, you know, interests me to kind of write about or, or explore more. How long does that process usually, you said a couple days where you'll just like deep dive and then you'll come up for air and like shave and take a shower type of thing? Yeah. So I like to set up, you know, a couple hours each day for several days in a row where I can just dive, dive, dive. And what I do is I just take a notebook and write the big topics um, or the big takeaways on there. And then what I'll do is I'll come up for air, all that good stuff. And then maybe a week or two later, like go deep on a similar kind of related topic till I have like a good idea of like whatever big picture I'm, I'm wrestling with. And my goal is to have like, you know, the, the several principles or highlights from each. And that allows me to then just throw that into a document and then start wrestling on the high level of like, Hey, does this fit together? Does this make sense? Is this something that I can coalesce and turn into something bigger? Gotcha. Gotcha. Thanks for that. Um, how about you, Brad? Projects are you well, working on? I got some stuff I'm working on solo, and then I got some stuff that Steve and I are working on. So where do we start? I start solo, and then close it out with uh, you know the lovely. It's the best part of the podcast. You better stick around and hear what Steve and I are cooking up. <laughs> the um, the solo stuff is I'm writing the my next book and the manuscript of that, so I'm like deep in the wormhole of writing and I'm doing more work with um, New York Times Opinion, which has been just super cool and kind of like a pinch me is this real because that's uh, that's precious real estate for the the kinds of things that we're trying to communicate and get across. So I've been doing a lot of writing, um, enjoying it and very much looking forward to especially finishing the manuscript because then I can get back more into the dabbling reading mode that Steve talked about, which is just a different muscle. So like all things, when you're kind of at the end of a training block or at the end of a writing block, you're excited for the next thing. And, and, and that's where I'm, I, I am. And then the thing that we got cooking up together, we just have to find the right time and place. So 
Steve recently went out to hang and record a podcast with Rich Roll. It's not yet out yet. And um, I'll just get right to it. So Rich is a big fan of this idea that we have for the, the Growth EQ Challenge, where I'm going to run and we're, we're both going to run all out miles as fast as we can and then deadlift as much as we can. And the winner is the person whose percent difference across both is less. So for instance, if I pull 460 pounds and Steve pulls 230, he deadlifted 50% less than me, which means if he runs a 430 mile, I got to run a nine minute mile or else he wins. And, um, we want to break the internet with this because we'd film it. We'd get some good announcers. Um, and it would be, it would be, it would be ugly. So we're trying to find the right time, place and venue, um, for both of us to run all out miles and then deadlift as much as we can. We also need to find at least two orthopedic trauma surgeons to have available, (laughs) um, probably a cardiovascular surgeon at the helm, um, a couple ambulances nearby. Uh, but, uh, but I think that we'll make it happen because I think it would be a lot of fun. I don't know what I could do in the mile. I was thinking today too, that I don't know if I would just try to run it or if I would run walk the mile for the best time. So like run a 400, walk 200, run a 400, walk 200. Um, I think that might actually put me in position. I don't think Steve can deadlift more than half of what I can. So I think I just need to be twice as slow or better. I, I think we need to finalize our scoring system first before we go, go into this competition. Doesn't that have to be it? Percentage different. It seems like the most raw, easy way to do it. I don't know. I'm not sure if that's because it's like two different metrics. Yeah. Like a mile is kind of capped out. Yeah. Or what do you mean capped you out? Like so a is a deadlift. Like you need something else. You need to have like an eating contest or something just to really, you know, flex all the muscles. Like a donut eating contest. I mean, I don't know, maybe not donuts, but you know what I mean. Like, there needs to be some other something that's a little bit more equal among you guys. Because I mean, unless Steve is coaching you, Brad, on running, and Brad, you're like helping Steve with his deadlift form. I mean, it's gonna be it's gonna be ugly. No, that's the point. And part <laughs> of the competition is you're not allowed to train in the other person's pursuit. So I'm never gonna. I mean, I won't run a mile until the day we do this. But I think not- it's the perfect scoring. I think it'll be very close that way. I don't think so. I got to put some thought into this. Steve's just scared that he can't deadlift more than 100 pounds. No, that because... Because you can that, argue that we should adjust it for weight, but then you no, should adjust my running score for weight. I think my thing is there's like, it's percent, like, I don't think percent difference is the right way to do it. No, because the mile is like, like, so let me put it this way. Okay. If I, if you deadlift, all right, what do you dead? Let's say you, you deadlift, you know, 450 pounds, right? Um, what's, I know the, where wh- Steve's going. That's like a good deadlift, but it's but not it's, incredible. But it's like half, it's not even half of like the world record. World right? record. Correct. Well, right? come on. The world but, record but, is and, that and guy's if I was in peak, sh- if clean. I was in peak shape, if I was and I'm not, but if I was in peak shape <laughs> and let's say ran four oh something in the mile, I'm within like twenty seconds of the world record. You know what I mean? 
but like you there. running, <laughs> but you, I'm you not know, within 20 pounds of the, the world. You're, 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 you're like half, you're like, you know, the guy you're on one half of the bar of, <laughs> of the world record. So, you know, it's just like, it's, it's a little, it's a little, we got to think of, of the comparison here. That's why if you throw in like a hot dog eating contest, that just kind of will just make it extra ridiculous or or not make it a mile, make it like a 5K. So that's a little bit more, uh, you know, gives you more opportunity to do your run walks. Well, I think here's where we're going with it, because maybe if 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 it wasn't going to be double and I can't just phone it in, then I got to run like a seven minute mile. I got to show up and that would fucking destroy me. But I think I could do it. <laughs> so then what you get is against the running population, a decent mile because most people are slower than seven minutes in like an incredible mile. And then in lifting, what you get is a decent deadlift in the worst deadlift in the history of the gym that we're at. <laughs> Just wait, man. Just wait. Deadlift. And, uh, there and I go. Someone's going to not... video this, hopefully. Oh, yeah. Video. This is gonna I mean, be we're, a... trying to get, we're trying to get Rich Roll to come MC it. <laughs> oh, jeez. This is going to be a, a Brad and Steve YouTube production, even though we don't know what we're doing. So, yeah, wow. um, it'll be sponsored by um, we'll try to get the clothing company that Rich does. Uh, what is it like 10,000 or 1000? They make great 10, clothes. Yeah. My pitch is it's going to open it up to a whole new audience of power lifters. There you go. There you it'll go. be interesting. Well, hopefully we still have listeners uh, that are checking out this podcast, but we're through all of our questions. So thank you to everyone that submitted questions. Um, I hope you found this formative, interesting, entertaining, all of the above. And yeah, thank you, Brad and Steve, for you know being so open and candid with your responses. Not thank that I'd expect for, anything uh, else. For, for coming on and in, in hosting. Yeah, no worries. Thanks for having me. All right, everyone, uh, we appreciate you tuning in. We'll catch you next Wednesday with another episode of the Growth EQ pod. Uh, until then, y'all know where to find us, www.thegrowtheq.com. And if you want all kinds of neat extra stuff and to support the show, hit us up on Patreon, www.patreon.com backslash the growth equation. And we'll catch y'all next week. Thanks for listening to the Growth Equation podcast. Learn more about our work and find show notes at our website, www.thegrowtheq.com. Follow us on Twitter, at B. Stahlberg and at Steve Magnus. And if you like what you listen to, please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, as this goes a long way in helping it reach others.